Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a report showing that fewer jobs were added in April than expected has some business owners and media minions shaking heads and pointing fingers about how people don't want to work. Listeners will have heard the trope, providing a scarcely needed opening for shop-worn assertions about how government assistance to keep folks' head above water robs people, some people, mind you, it's always only some people, of their work ethic. At this point, the fact that data don't support a connection between unemployment benefits and difficulty in hiring is beside the point. That work ethic equals the willingness to work in whatever conditions at whatever wage is an unchallenged and mostly unspoken pillar of corporate reporting. The trouble for them is millions of people are now hearkening to the idea, expressed in a popular meme, that if, as an employer, you offer wages less than unemployment, you are less a job creator than a poverty exploiter. And people are less and less willing to accept the line that an insistence on a livable life will wreck what we're told is the economy. Do elite media have space for people who don't want to risk their lives for less money than they need to live? It's a big conversation, but we'll start by talking about breaking through false but hardy narratives with Michael Hiltzik, business columnist and blogger for the Los Angeles Times and author of, most recently, Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. That's coming up, but first, a look back at some recent press. Whatever you care about, police killings, corporate influence on elections, the open killing of gray wolves, it matters whether you can use your voice to influence policy. That's what many people would call democracy. You vote for people based on their saying they will push for things that you want and against, or at least not for, things you don't want. And that's the deal. Whether it happens, why it doesn't, when it doesn't, is always an active question, but still, that's the deal, as commonly presented and as commonly understood. As that arrangement is the backdrop to corporate media dialogue, it's been creepy to see them describe frank efforts to make voting harder, like that underfoot in Georgia, as controversial as though they were head-scratchers. Rational people may disagree, when really the controversy is only between people who actually support democracy and those who actually don't. Now we see influential outlets like The Hill describe congressional debate over the For the People Act, S-1 in the Senate and H.R. 1 in the House, an attempt to countermand this sprouting racist disenfranchisement this way. Quote, Senators are set for a high-stakes battle over one of Democrats' biggest priorities that could have repercussions not only for the 2022 midterm elections, but the Senate itself. Close quote. 
The Hill declared the For the People Act something that, quote, progressives view as crucial to the future of democracy and Republicans see as a federal takeover of the voting process, close quote. We get it. Beltway media are assigned red-blue glasses that obscure all else. But is it too much to ask that journalists who pretend to write for all the people maybe gesture toward the millions of black and brown and indigenous and rural and disabled U.S. citizens who will preeminently face the repercussions of laws making it harder for them to vote? Maybe they could include their voices above the fold in stories about the processes that are determining whether or not their vote matters, rather than re-re-re-recycling the sound bites of powerful people declaring their reasons that less powerful people should not get to speak. As we record on May 11th, social media are kicking corporate news media's butt on disinforming language around the ongoing Israeli assault in Sheikh Jarrah. Whereas last week's guest Ahmed Abuznet explained Palestinians are being violently uprooted from their homes and subsequent Israeli attacks on Gaza and elsewhere that have killed, again at time of recording, 26 Palestinians, including nine children, as well as two Jewish Israelis. Under useful interrogation are perennial corporate media tropes like the term clashes, which implies a symmetry of forces where none exists, and the description of Israel's actions as retaliation, which has the effect of starting the violence clock with Palestinian acts and tacitly assigning them and absolving Israel of blame for whatever trauma occurs. None of this is new, sadly, to anyone following U.S. reporting on Israel-Palestine or the Middle East since forever. But if you've seen an outlet that's offering a perspective that's deep or informative or humanistic, and you recognize the antidote that that provides to what you're absorbing from the biggest media players, well, that's an outlet that needs your support. And finally, sometimes U.S. imperialist media jokes write themselves. A vivid example of that was a late April Washington Post story about official enemy Venezuela, a longtime target of U.S. policy aimed at immiserating the populace to force a change to a leadership more friendly, read subservient, to the United States, not to put too fine a point on it. When a country is an enemy... It doesn't matter if conditions match or better those of a regional friend. It doesn't matter if conditions are due to external intervention. When a country is an enemy, journalists' rules don't matter. What else explains the Washington Post's headline, quote, In the Venezuelan workers' paradise, very different pandemics for the haves and have-nots, close quote. As noted by critic Adam Johnson, no one in the piece calls Venezuela a worker's paradise. That's just random, sarcastic, tabloid editorializing, except it's in the headline, because that's the point. 
The piece pretends to care about the economic inequality of Latin America, but it doesn't mention the impact of sanctions or U.S. regime change efforts, and it asks readers to gasp at the idea that, quote, across Latin America, the haves and the have-nots are living and dying in two radically different pandemics, close quote. What say you? That, quote, survival in a worsening pandemic is boiling down to economics, close quote. Well, you can't mean it. And that public hospitals are under-equipped. Why? Because Venezuela is a, quote, broken socialist state, close quote. So weakened that citizens pay, wait for it, out of pocket for health care. We'll shut the front door. It'd be funny if it were a joke, but it's instead a concerted long-term effort of corporate media to tell U.S. readers that Venezuela is so terrible that we should economically immiserate their people further and also militarily invade them, killing a lot of them, because, well, because of conditions that obtain here in the United States. But don't think about it that way because us and them. Quote, if you don't have money, you don't have a chance. Close quote. The Washington Post quotes a source. What a sad country that would be, eh? Where if you don't have money, you don't have a chance. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich tweeted recently, quote, This is not complicated. If you can't afford to pay your employees a living wage, you do not have a viable business model. Close quote. It was a response to, first of all, an ostensible reality, a Bureau of Labor Statistics report that the U.S. economy added 266,000 jobs in April, whereas analysts had predicted jobs added would be as high as a million. Combined with things like a Chamber of Commerce analysis saying that the extra $300 unemployment insurance benefit provided was resulting in one in four recipients taking home more pay than they had earned working. We'll add that up to the images and memes that listeners may have seen of signs in store windows about how those businesses are closed because no one wants to work anymore. So there's a factual disconnect here. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has noted that if the connection were between benefits and hiring, you would see states and sectors with high wage replacement rates for unemployment benefits having more difficulty adding jobs, but that's not what we see. But we know that this really isn't a conversation about data. It's about interpretations and maybe even more so about visions. Do we want a country where a handful of <clears throat> white people do well and everyone else, <clears throat> black and brown, scrapes by, accepting whatever pay and conditions are offered, including in service industries, for example, sub-minimum wage and frank harassment? Well, along with naturally accepting that their children won't be allowed to advance any more than they did because they don't have any power to demand anything else. 
major news media often suggest that economics is a dry field about numbers, not really about people. We know that it's about much, much more than numbers, and fewer and fewer people buy that particular bill of goods. But we're all still looking to the day's paper to help us understand what's going on in the world. A major media reporter who doesn't regard corporate capitalist economic theory as scripture is actually incredibly rare. Michael Hiltzik is business reporter and a daily blogger for the Los Angeles Times and author most recently of Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Counterspin, Michael Hiltzik. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, like I say, my beef with news media's frequent presentation of economics is that it's a dry kind of analytical field where there's a right and a wrong and everyone kind of knows what it is and it's just a question of how we get to it when really there's there's visions involved, you know? It's about how much you value people and how you create an idea of uh, what's acceptable for an economy around that vision of people, you know? So I, I just want to drop you right in to, to this question that we're now talking about, nobody wants to work. Let's, let's start with just the data. Are there more people looking for jobs than can find them? Or is there a labor shortage? Because if I just pick up a newspaper, media are telling me both things. Well, sure. I think that it's fair to say that there is a labor shortage. What the real debate is about is why there's a labor shortage, why there are businesses that are unable to find the workers that they want. And it's natural, just as uh, anything is natural, to hear business owners complain about basically government policies. And in this case, they're complaining about unemployment benefits that they claim are too generous. In fact, there's no data that supports that notion. It's an intuitive reaction by business owners who don't want to pay their employees more and don't want to basically create more welcoming workplaces so that they can attract and recruit more workers. Well, that's what's so interesting. We have often kind of in the background in news reporting this very 101 idea of how a capitalist economy works. And, you know, there's supply and demand and, you know, but so wouldn't this just be a situation where, you know, if if workers aren't filling in, that's because employers aren't 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 um, supplying them with conditions that they want to work in. Why does that then get translated into this? moralistic thing um, about somehow workers are lazy and they don't appreciate what it really means to work and, and yada, yada, yada. You know, it's, if it's dry economics, why isn't it dry economics? Sure. Well, there's, there's a long tradition in this country uh, of holding up people who are unemployed or underemployed as the undeserving poor, that if they're not working, it's because of their own moral turpitude. And this is very convenient for employers who want to pay as little as they can get away with, who can offer benefits that are as stingy as they can get away with. 
But what we've seen, and, and in fact we've seen this in the last few months as the economy opens up or tries to open up, is that businesses that actually are willing to pay more, better than, than minimum wage or even much better than minimum wage, and are willing to offer decent benefits, they're not having as much trouble and maybe having no trouble recruiting workers to fill the slots they have. So the dime, so to speak, has to drop for these employers. They have to stop blaming the unemployment system for their inability to hire. And, of course, whenever I see these signs posted that say, sorry for the long lines or the low hours at our establishment, nobody wants to work, I think the subtext is nobody wants to work for me. And it may be that prospective workers don't think they're going to be paid well enough if they're in the restaurant and bar business, it's because they know that these jobs are really shaky, that they can be fired uh, for, for no no excuse, and they're not going to be paid very well to put up with obnoxious managers and obnoxious customers, so they're going elsewhere. What we saw in, in this latest jobs report, which, as you said, was a disappointing 266,000 new jobs created in the month of April, is that we actually saw the best growth in low-wage sectors. We saw perfectly good growth in restaurants and hotels and bars, where you would expect that if these lavish, so-called lavish unemployment benefits were really the story, that's where you would see the biggest gaps. But that's not what's happening. And we've also seen, in terms of the analysis, a kind of like COVID exception, you know, which is, well, maybe maybe it's not generous, which, you know, you kind of have to snicker at generous, the idea of generous unemployment benefits, um, but that those might not be why some people are not seeking work, but some news accounts are saying, well, maybe they have somebody sick at home. Maybe it has to do with coronavirus, or maybe their kids aren't back in school full-time yet, and they still need to be at home to care for them. Yes, that's right. There are a lot yeah. of reasons yeah. why people, workers who are unemployed at the moment may be reluctant to take jobs, especially low-wage jobs and difficult jobs and arduous jobs, um, and they include fear of catching the virus at their, at their workplace, either from their coworkers or from their customers, an inability to find child care or to afford child care. We're still in a stage where not all schools are open. I think there are more, more students that are still learning remotely than there are going to class. And, of course, that means that their, their parents, either or, or both parents, don't have the flexibility to take any job that's offered. So there are a lot of reasons, and what's striking is that when you read a lot of these newspaper reports or watch television clips and what have you, it's always the unemployment benefits that are named first and these other factors that are sort of also in the background. You know, I would point out that if you look at these news articles and news clips, in which business owners are claiming that it's all about unemployment benefits, you never see a worker actually being interviewed. Mm -hmm. You only see business owners basically talking their own self-interest. Now, there's only one newspaper article I've seen that actually covers both sides of it. It was a recent article in the Washington Post out of Florida, which pointed out 
not only are these other factors in play, but the number of restaurants and bars opening in Miami is at an all-time high. So there's a lot of demand for workers, and maybe not every restaurant can fill all of its slots because it's got competition for workers who, who will work. So basically there's a myth out there that it's all and only about unemployment benefits. What's really harmful is that we have some governors who are taking this as red and are cutting unemployment benefits for workers in their states, supposedly to get them back to work. And we've seen this now in Montana and North Carolina, and and more states are already lining up. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this in red states. When I wrote my last column about this, it was only Montana and South Carolina. Well, as of today, we now have Arkansas joining the club, and, and undoubtedly we'll have more because it's an easy sort of intuitive meme to throw around that, oh, well, these people are just sitting around at home because they're lazy. One person said, you know, it's it's uh, there's no incentive to go to work when they can stay on the couch, which I just think would just would just shock and amaze uh, so many people who are struggling, you know, with being out of work, being underemployed, with having children to care for, with having, you know, the idea that they're sitting on the couch, I just think is just amazing, you know, and you point to uh, the importance of sources as well as ideas in terms of the impression that that media give. Well, I, I guess one of the things I'm concerned about is that there seems to be a kind of idea that among the most critical uh, news coverage, it's like, well, maybe there was something about global pandemic that made the economic system suddenly not work for people or suddenly not work for women, you know, or you could say, you know what, people have always had somebody sick at home. People have always had a kid who needs care. You know, I feel like you can either say our perfect system broke down in a crisis Or you can say this crisis has exposed that our system is flawed and has problems in it. So I guess I'm concerned about the economic takeaway from COVID's impact on the economy. Sure. What we've seen from the very beginning of this pandemic and the very beginning of the shutdowns and the lockdowns is that the United States, in terms of how it treats its its workers, particularly its frontline workers, the so-called essential workers, as we keep hearing them labeled, is that the safety net for the working class is far inferior to the safety net that we see in European countries and Asian countries. In this country, it's very rare for a working class employee to have access to sick leave. This became an issue starting very early in the pandemic, when we actually wanted people to stay home to reduce the transmission of this virus. And we discovered that, well, most people can't afford to stay home because they don't have sick time coming to them. The United States is far behind other countries in providing for childcare for working parents. That's still the case. It's still the case that sick leave is rare. Even among the professional class, sick leave is not really very generous in this country. So these are all flaws in the system that emerged as the tide went out due to COVID. And the question is, are we going to do anything about it? Are we going to continue to complain about this mythical, lazy 
worker and show how insulting and demeaning we can be in talking about the working class. Well, let me just ask you, finally, as a journalist, does it have to do with who is allowed to speak or who reporters speak to? Does it have to do with what ideas get consigned to the op-eds versus what show up in the front page news stories? What would allow news media to reflect more... I want to say accurately, but also more humanely on the economic reality facing so many U.S. citizens today. What could help it be less top-down and see more workers see themselves reflected in the news they read? Well, reporters and their editors have to spend more time seeking out workers and not simply relying on what employers tell them as though that's gospel. I can tell you that I get emails every day from people who say, well, I've got friends who are employers who say it's obvious that they can't get employees because unemployment benefits are so high. And my response to them is, how do they know this? When they are interviewing a prospective employee, does the employee say, well, I'm making too much on unemployment. I don't really need to come work for you. Or does the employee say, well, you're not paying enough which is rather a different story. We need to stop taking the employer's viewpoint as gospel because they have an interest in putting out a story that blames somebody else other than themselves. And you have to ask yourself, if you've got an employer who's posting a sign saying, nobody wants to work, is that somebody you want to work for? Somebody who's got that approach that it's the employee's fault or the workers' fault that they're not coming to work, rather than the employers' fault. We've been speaking with Michael Hiltzik. He's business reporter and a daily blogger for the Los Angeles Times, author of numerous books, including most recently, Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Michael Hiltzik, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. You can learn more about FAIR on our website and hear previous shows and find transcripts at FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. My name's Janine Jackson. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Counterspin.